Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of God. If you're new or visiting Metro today, uh, we're concluding a series, a long series that we started in January on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount teaches what it means to be a Christian. That is, if you take the gospel, and if you digest the gospel, if you take it in, actually take it in, what happens? And Jesus starts to outline what happens in those three chapters, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And in chapter 5, way at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount begins with a series of blessings. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you if you mourn. Blessed are the meek, and so on and so forth. He goes on and says, you are salt and light of the world. Jesus first begins with the identity of a Christian. You are blessed, he says. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he goes into obedience. The, the life of a Christian, one whose identity is found in Christ. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say obey and then you will be found in Christ. Obey and then you will receive this identity. He starts out and says, this is your identity. You are a Christian. You are God's child. You are blessed. You are salt. You are light. And then he goes into, in other words, you have a new identity. You have a distinct new identity, a new status, a new position. That's how he begins. But then now at the end of this passage, at the end of this series of teachings, he goes into a warning. He starts to caution us. And he does this by saying there are two types of people. This whole passage that we're going to be reading and studying today is all about two types of people. And these two types of people represent two ways that we relate to God, two ways that we connect to God. And you need to know this. Clearly, he ends and summarizes the entire series of teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you need to know this because both types, 
say that they are Christians. Both types say they're Christians, but only one of them is true. Now, if you're alive and sitting in this room, I don't know why you're here, but this should grab you. This should get you. Because the natural question is, which type am I? He says both types are Christians. Only one is true. So he wants you to discern. He wants you to distinguish. He's calling us to make distinctions of what it means to be a Christian. And he gives us five metaphors. Verses 13 and 14, he says there are two gates and two roads. But one of them leads to destruction. Then you go into the next three metaphors. They're really connected. They're combined in a sense to, again, to help us to distinguish between these two types of people. It's progressive. Verse 15, there are two types of prophets. One of them's a wolf. One of them devours. Why? How can you tell? Verses 16 to 20, there are two trees bearing two types of fruit, but one of them is bad fruit. The actual word there is poisonous fruit. Verses 21 to 23, why is that? How do you tell? There are two types of people. One type prays. One type says, we're Christians. But he says they're not. He says they're not. And then he ends by saying there are two houses. Again, represents two types of people. One of them is destined to crash and fall apart. Five very quick metaphors. They teach us two things. What it means to be a fake follower of Jesus. And secondly, what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. Fake followers, authentic followers. We're going to do it over these five metaphors. First, Jesus says, verses 13 to 14, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only if you find it. What's he saying there? He says three things. One, everyone is headed somewhere spiritually right now. A road is a destination. Everyone is on a road. That means everyone here makes decisions, and those decisions lead to destinations. Your life decisions, your life commitments will take you somewhere. And every minute of your life, you're moving towards one destination or the other, he says. We're all on a road. We're all basing our life and our decisions, our commitments on some belief about God, on some belief about God's church, and on some belief about eternity. Even if you don't believe in God, that's a belief in God. Even if you don't believe in God, that's a faith decision that's going to take you somewhere because we're all on a road. Number two, what he's saying is that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. That word broad in the Greek, it means to be free. Wide is the gate, and free is the road that leads to destruction. That's what he's saying there. In other words, there's a way of life that a lot of people enter in. Why? Because it looks like it leads to freedom. It looks like it leads to openness. This way looks like the right way. They're not purposely going the wrong way. They think this is the right way. This is the way that's going to lead me to freedom. This is the road that's going to lead me to a joyful life, he says. It's outwardly open-minded. It's outwardly tolerant. It looks free. It's open. It's wide. A lot of people are on it because it leads to this, but he says it leads to destruction. It's going to take you to your death. What's death? Death is the ultimate narrowness. 
In other words, there's a road that looks very free, very inviting, very open. It's going to lead you to a path of freedom, you think, but it actually leads you to ultimate narrowness. But there's also a small gate and a narrow road. The word in Greek there literally means it's a crushing road. It's cramped. It feels restrictive. You feel like you're constantly being pushed in a certain direction that's restrictive and closed and intolerant and and narrow-minded. But, he says, it leads to life, a life of ultimate freedom a life of ultimate openness. There are two roads. He says, enter through the gate. Get on that road that may seem narrow. It may seem like it's constrictive and restrictive, even sometimes intolerant, but it leads you to life. Thirdly, what's that broad road? The broad road is whatever comes natural to you, whatever is instinctive to you. That's why a lot of people enter through it. It's because it's natural. You're already on it. It's instinctive for you. Because what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who says, I'm going to go against what's natural to me. I'm going to go against what's instinctive to me. What's that? Caring for myself, survival, building for myself. And that includes my view of God. I define who God is. A Christian says the opposite. God defines who I am. And it's uncomfortable at times. It's narrow, very narrow at times. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how many things you've accomplished, no matter what kind of good life you may live, the Word of God shows you who you really are. On one hand, it's, the Word of God says we're sinners. On the other hand, a sinner that can be redeemed by grace, sheer grace, not, no works added, purely by grace. The narrow road is a road that's counterintuitive to our natural instincts. So that means you're going to fight this road. You're going to argue against it. You're going to feel constricted. You're going to wander from it. You're going to be defensive when you're on it. But eventually, you're going to submit to Christ. And when to submit to Christ means that you're going to counter those instincts, those natural instincts. You're going to counter your, your natural desire or will. You're going to be moved. You're going to be transformed. That's your heart. You're going to be shaped in the heart in a way that's completely unnatural because it's supernatural. And when your mind gets shaped by the gospel, when your will gets shaped by the gospel, when your heart gets shaped by the gospel, we call that worship. The Christian life, you see, is not less than obedience. It's more. It's deeper than obedience. And this passage shows us that you can be completely obedient. Remember, Jesus went through talking about the law and the prophets. He goes through the entire aspects of the law, the moral law, and then ends by saying, you can do all these things. You can be completely obedient and still be on the road to destruction because you're actually using that obedience to earn your freedom. That's what it means to be on the broad road. Because when you're, when you're earning your freedom and you're doing things to earn freedom, earn God's approval, in a way, God owes you because of the things you've done, because of the sacrifices that you've made. Jesus says, get on the narrow road. Get on the narrow road. Verse 15, next. <clears throat> he says, watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. 
That word sheep in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, the word sheep always represents the people of God, the church, Christians. In other words, these people are not out there. They are inside the church as leaders even, shepherds, prophets. Jesus says, watch out for them. That's scary. If you've been in the church for a while, that should scare us, right? Jesus doesn't say, watch out for the skeptics, watch out for the immoral people, watch out for those atheists out there, because it doesn't take any discernment to find and spot those people. He says, watch out for false prophets, teachers. In other words, if it applies to teachers, it applies to anybody here in this room. These are people who look like believers. These are people who act like they believe in Jesus. They pray. They know the Bible. They're very consistent at church. They look like they're doing and they they understand God's will. They speak even with wisdom. They're prophets. They teach. They speak with wisdom. But Jesus calls them ferocious wolves. In the New Testament, the word ferocious is similar to a greed that leads to blackmail, a greed that leads to extortion. What's he saying? He's saying false prophets know Christian culture. They dress themselves in sheep's clothing, right? Christian culture. On the outside, they look like sheep, but on the inside, they're so empty, they're so hungry, and so they're going to do anything they can. They're voracious. They're ferocious. They're going to do anything they can to fill themselves. And so they extort and they blackmail God. Why? Even though they look like sheep, they're duplicitous. There's duplicity there in their lives. And so they devour. And you don't just see the way they are in the church. That's how they are at work. You've got to look at the whole body, the whole content of their lives their body of work in their lives, the way they are at church, the way they are in their friendships, the way they are in their marriages, the way they are with they raise children, the way they are at work. You've got to look at the 360-degree view of their life, and it's all self-serving. You see it in their complaints, what they desire, the way they spend time criticizing other people more than themselves. They're devouring them. That's the gossip. That's the backbiting, the cheating, the stealing, the manipulation. Why? Because all these things, the gossip, the duplicity, the lies, the talk, it's a way of extorting God to make them feel better about themselves, to validate themselves. These things are the source of their value and their worth and their significance. C.S. Lewis calls it their glory. This is their glory. That's why they're good. That's why they act good. They're coming to God to get something other than God. They're coming to God as a way of extorting God, blackmailing God. And so they have qualities of submission like sheep, but they're not submissive. That's why their worldview is distorted. That's why they speak with distortion, you see. That's why they live life distorted. That's why they gossip. That's why they lie. That's why they're duplicitous. Jesus says it's because they lack an inner glory. And because of that emptiness, driven by their sinfulness, they're starving and they're ferocious. And they do everything they can. Everything they do is to feed that hunger. And that hunger doesn't end. They're ferocious wolves, he says. And you see it in the whole content of their lives. Wolves are never tame. No one has a pet wolf, right? Right? You're always wild. 
You can't control a wolf. So outwardly they may obey like sheep. But he says inside they are wild. God has not tamed them. They refuse to be tamed by God. How do you discern? This is a progression. These next three uh, metaphors are really a progression. So how do you discern? How can you tell between a a real teacher uh, of God and a false teacher? How do you discern between a person who's a real Christian and someone who's a false Christian? He says, well, you've got to look at their fruit, he says. That's how you distinguish. That's how you tell the difference. Verses 16 to 20, by their fruit, you will know. By their fruit, you can distinguish. In other words, there are two trees. He doesn't say one tree has fruit and the other tree does not have any fruit because it wouldn't take any wisdom to be able to discern then between those two trees. He doesn't say one tree has fruit that's incredibly shriveled and the other tree has fruit that's incredibly delicious looking. That wouldn't take any discernment to tell. This is the shocking part. He says, watch out for false prophets, you know, false leaders, false Christians. And then Jesus says, he distinguishes between these two trees. They both bear fruit. But he says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. By bad, he means poison. Poisonous fruit. That's the word in Greek. In other words, a good tree has good roots, good values. If you have a gospel heart, your fruit will bear gospel fruit. If you have Jesus at the root, Jesus will appear at the fruit. But if you have a heart that is deception, a heart that is cheating, a heart that is lying, a heart that is duplicitous, The fruit you bear will be lies and deceit, manipulation. That's where the jealousy comes from. That's where the manipulation comes from. It's everywhere. He's not talking about out there. He's saying in here. That's what he's saying. You can tell by what they say. You can tell by the fruit of what they say. If somebody is claiming to be a Christian, and meanwhile they're gossiping about other people, if someone is claiming to be a Christian, but they're not loving to the people next to them, if someone claims to be a Christian, on one hand, says all the right things, but then at the heart, all you see is the complaining and the grumbling and picking out what's wrong with everybody but themselves, right? He says, that's poisonous. That's a poisonous root. It bears poisonous fruit. The reason why he says watch out It's because both a tree with good fruit and the one with poisonous fruit look exactly alike. But if you take of the fruit, if you consume that, one of those types of people sustains life, is life-giving. That's the fruit. The other is life-taking. That's the fruit. One is filled with poison the lies and the grumbling and the gossiping and the boasting and the selfishness and the discord. And they're doing whatever they can. They're ferocious, ferocious wolves. They're doing whatever they can to feed their hunger. Whatever they can do to feel a sense of significance and validation, that's what makes me so people act superior because in the heart they are inferior. And if you have inferior root, inferior fruit. You see, 
And notice, he doesn't say that these people are dumb. He doesn't say that. He talks about prophets and teachers. They are smart people. They're reasonable people. They're logical people. They can dialogue. They're teachers, he says. Watch out, he says. Watch out. Now, I used to think there are two roads, two types of prophets, two types of trees. Jesus is clearly talking about people who obey God and people who disobey God. But again, that doesn't take any discernment. You see, that's not what he says. And to make sure we understand, he tells a parable. And you know, what, what are parables? Parables are stories that as Jesus tells a story, as the story unravels, the punchline in the story will shock any listener in Jesus' time. So you have to understand the punchline in its context, but it provides amazing lessons for us today. And so Jesus kind of captures this metaphor or captures a series of metaphors in verses 21 to 23. He follows up and he says, these are two types of people. In the church, these two trees, one of them says, well, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that day is the day of judgment, that last day, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not prophesy? These are false prophets, remember. He says, did we not prophesy? In other words, did we not teach? Did we not counsel? Did we not gather people in your name because we are a church? Did we not do church together? Did we not drive out demons? Did we not help people heal and be there for them and walk with them? Did we not perform miracles and serve and do all these things? And here's the punchline. It would shock any listener in Jesus' day. He says, I will tell them plainly. He's not trying to, he doesn't say like this dramatic thing. He says, I will tell them plainly. I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me. And he says, you evildoers. These are people who do good things. He says, you're doing evil because they're doing it not to get, they're doing it to get things. They're doing it to get things from God. Validation. Approval. They're working for God's approval, but they don't have God. And he's saying it's very possible for people to call Jesus Lord and yet not know him. In fact, Jesus never knew them. Shocking. Because Jesus begins with qualities that both true Christians and false Christians share. There are three things he says. One, they knew their Bible. They called Jesus Lord. The Greek word is kyrios. In the Old Testament, that word is translated as Yahweh. It's a very personal word that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. God gives Moses the name Yahweh as a way for his people, the people that God especially treasures, his people, the people of God, the church, to refer to God in a personal way. In the Greek, that word is translated as kyrios. That means that these people, they knew their Bible. They knew their Old Testament. They knew their Bible. They knew, they studied the word of God. Secondly, they're passionate. They were moved. They're incredibly fervent. They prayed, Lord, Lord. Anytime you see the doublet in the in Jewish literature, Hebrew literature, Lord, Lord, it represents emotional content. In the Old Testament, you have King David. When his son was conspiring against him, tried to use serpent, and he dies. David is cradling Absalom. And he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. David is weeping. He's crying. He's incredibly emotionally moved. 
Jesus Christ in the New Testament, he's sitting with Mary. Mary's at his feet. Martha's running around doing all this work to serve Jesus. And Martha gets fed up. Don't you see me? He says. Tell Mary to come and help me. Jesus responds, Martha, Martha. He's emotional. He's moved by that. Martha is so starving for validation and attention. And he's working to get Jesus' approval. And Jesus says, just sit. Mary gets it. You don't get it. And he's moved by that. The third thing is they served. Did we not prophesy? Did we not drive out demons? Did we not perform miracles? Jesus isn't denying the fact they did these things. Jesus isn't denying their competence. He's not denying their doing. He doesn't say, depart from me, you liar. Ah, you never did that. That's not what he says. These people are sound in scripture. They're passionate. They serve faithfully. But Jesus says, I didn't know you. That's what's scary because it could be any of us here in this room. There's no real relationship with God. The Christian life is not less than the Bible. It's not less than worship. It's not less than service in the church. It's so much more than that. Some of us emphasize the word as being more important. You know, those of us, especially, you know, people, we have a lot of seminary study people here. They emphasize the word above how you feel and what you do. There are people here, they're all about feelings, very little emphasis on doctrine or deeds. And then there are others, it's all about service, but it's, you know, I want to see it in action. But it's not as much about the word or about worship. But these people that Jesus is talking about, they have all three. They have all three. They're incredible people. And the shocking part there is Jesus says, you could be a fake Christian and have all three. Wow. How do you know the difference? How do you discern in your own life? He says there's two ways. One, the first, it's all about the kingship of Jesus. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. These people had gifts, but they didn't have God. They used their gifts as a way of extorting God. That's what he was basically saying. They're ferocious wolves. They used their gifts as a way of blackmailing God to earn access. But what does it take to be a Christian? In this passage, Jesus says, a Christian comes to God for God. The only prerequisite to becoming a Christian is to say that I want God in my life. I need him in my life. But how? Because to truly serve God is to surrender. The false Christians, they say, yes, I want the thrill. I've experienced the thrill, and I want the thrill of having a relationship with God. I want the access in a relationship with God. I want the community of being in a relationship with God, but I want it on my terms. I want it my way. I don't want to be in a position where I can't decide for myself. I'm wise. I know exactly what I need. I know what to do with my life. I know who I can sleep with. I know when I can sleep with them. Don't tell me what to do. I know who I can forgive and when I should forgive them. I know what to talk about even when I'm angry at somebody. Don't tell me what I should say, what I should believe, what to do with my money. Jesus Christ here is saying that these people want the benefits of Christianity, but not the commitment of being a Christian. A real relationship those of you who are married, you understand this. There's a thrill in being married. Intimacy. There's an intimacy thrill, a thrill of intimacy. But there's also a tremendous amount of responsibility. 
tremendous responsibility in marriage. So if you're just in there for the thrill, the marriage isn't going to last. If you're just in there for the responsibility, you're going to kill that marriage. A real relationship has both. Both, right? That's both, right? A real relationship has both. Both, right? Uh, a real relationship has a thrill as well as responsibility. There's a call, right? But there's also tremendous power and joy, right? These people, they wanted God on their own terms without surrender. A Christian doesn't just say, I need to know this. I feel this. I do this. A real Christian says, I need to surrender this to the king. Christ is king in my life. The whole Sermon on the Mount can be summarized with the kingship of Jesus. Why do we obey? We love to obey because we know God's love for us. We obey because Jesus is king. You see, the mark of faith, these people, these false Christians, they rely on what they know. They rely on what they feel. They rely on what they do as the mark of their faith at any given point in time. But a Christian says, I may not know. I don't know right now. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Friends, I'm a pastor. Sometimes I don't feel like it. I don't feel like being one sometimes because I get angry. Sometimes I don't feel like it. There are times when I'm so riddled in anxiety and I can't overcome my own anxiety and I have to sit there and I have to fight myself, right? Why would anybody even want to do that? Because we so much want to just take matters into our own hands, don't we? Don't we do that? So a Christian says, I do it wrong. I feel terrible about it. I don't want to do this. But they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their sinfulness. They're meek, and so they give up the fight. They surrender. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness means approval. They're hungering and thirsting for God's approval, God's access, and they've been given access in Jesus, so they give up the fight. They don't have to feel like they're working to earn God's favor anymore because Christ has, has afforded that for them by his life and his death. So a real Christian is humble. A real Christian is teachable. A real Christian knows how to take criticism, and they're repentant. A real Christian takes ownership over their sinfulness. A real Christian takes responsibility. They say, yes, it's me. There's no buts. There's no ifs. A real Christian isn't surprised by their sin, and they're not depressed by their sin. It makes them very open-minded. That's true freedom, true openness. It makes them incredibly winsome. When an inauthentic Christian is criticized, what do they do? The first thing they do is they blame shift. It's not my fault. It's, it's because of this or it's because of this situation. That's the best one. It's not you. It's the situation, right? Um, it's, they make excuses. They dodge, right? They gossip, right? It's a way of getting attention away from them. Why? Because they're still trying to validate themselves. They're still trying to save themselves. And your validation in that moment to them is more important than the fact that they've already been received and approved by the king of the universe who has created them and sacrificed his life for them. You see? And so... A fake Christian, an inauthentic Christian is relying on what's natural to him and as a result, 
when you're doing that, a crit- criticism from other people absolutely destroys somebody who's trying to save himself. A Christian says, you got me. I give up. I surrender. That is me. I surrender. But I want to grow. And I need Jesus in my life. And I can't see. I'm so blind. I'm blind to my own blindness. You know, I've been blind to the fact that I'm blind. So I need you who can see better. I'm giving you a warrant for my arrest. Show me what's bad. Show me what's poisonous. Show me what's false. I don't want to just trust my instincts. I don't want to just trust my strengths or my gifts anymore. That's been filling my head with lies. I've been self-deceived. By the way, those things are all good things. Competencies, instincts, strengths, gifts, they're all good things. They're just not enough. They don't amount to anything to get access to God. You see that? that doesn't, that's not what builds the relationship. When you surrender, you're on that narrow road, and you're listening to the good shepherd, the true, genuine teacher, and you're going to bear good fruit, and it's going to be life-giving for yourself and life-giving for others because you surrender to the kingship of God, the kingship of Jesus. That's the first thing. But lastly, we talked about the kingship of Jesus that leads to surrender. That's how you apply it. You surrender. There are people in here. Are you a life-giving person? Or are you the one that is going to complain because you just know? You know better. Are you the person people go to because you have a critique about everything? Or when people come to you, are they given new life and they're refreshed and they'll be brought back to joy and they're healed again? They're empowered to go out and do it again. Or are you the guy that's wise? I can discern. I've been through stuff. I've seen stuff, right? So I know. Are you that guy? That doesn't give life to anyone. There's wisdom there, but there's no life-giving wisdom. The second thing he says is then, if you've surrendered to the king of, kingship of Jesus, you need to have a, an experience of the grace of Jesus in your life. Verse 24 to 27, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and applies them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. In other words, there are two homes. On the outside, they look exactly the same again. But Jesus says they have two different foundations. So the two houses represent two different types of people who have founded their lives on two different diametrically opposed things. What do they look like on the outside? This comes right after, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Did we not say these things? What do they look like? Both types have good teaching. Both types have good knowledge. Both types are emotional at times. They're worshipful and there's piety there. Both types serve. They're in ministries. They lead ministries. But underneath, one bases the entire construct of their life, their knowledge, their worship, their deeds, their service on a rock, he says. And the other builds the entire construct of their knowledge and worship and service, their deeds, on sand. In other words, there's not much underneath. How do you know the difference between the two? And Jesus becomes very poignantly truthful when he says, It's your storms that reveal it. Your storms, the crap that happens in your life, reveals what you have based your life on. 
Because when storms come, a person who has built his house on sand disregards what they know, disregards their worship, disregards what they do. Everything that their entire life construct goes away. That's why it's on sand. It literally washes away when the storm comes. They forget it. They abandon it. They reject it. So they fall down in self-despair, self-pity. They fall down in self-pride, anger, disillusionment, resentment. These are the things that come in because why? Because inside there's poison. I'm mixing all the metaphors. There's poison inside, you see? And so because they built their house on sand, when the storm comes, it reveals all these things, and they wash away. Everything that they believe washes away. Everything they say they believe washes away. The reason why is because worshiping God, the truth of God, serving God, these things were the foundation in the storm. And there's no real foundation. And so when the storm comes, everything crashes. They fall apart. They abandon everything that they've known because their actual foundation was something other than their personal relationship with God. A Christian says, Father, my knowledge stinks. My worship stinks. It's empty at times. My obedience, my deeds, it sucks. I feel again and again, why did Jesus die for me? Because I can't get anything right. I've done nothing to deserve it, and yet Jesus died for me. And so because he died for me, there is hope in my life. Because he died for me, there is truth in my life. That truth is not just something I know. It goes in. It speaks to me. It's alive in me. Jesus paid my penalty, and yet he embraces me even though I'm weak, even though I'm helpless. What's the rock? The rock is this. It's the foundational trust that your life is wholly redeemable and redeemed by the sheer grace of God in Jesus alone. That's it. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells uh, this parable about two people praying. He says there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee says, look at me. Look at me. I'm not like that dude over there. But the tax collector, tax collector was pretty much likened to like a drug dealer in our day today. A tax collector, he can't even look at God. And he says, Essentially, I believe it's four words, four words in his language. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it translates into. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that person is justified. That person is approved. That person gets in. He rests on the mercy of God alone. How can you rest on the mercy of God alone? You got to look at Jesus. You got to look to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the genuine follower. Jesus Christ is the true Son of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate glory and representation of God. But you know what he says? On the earth, on earth, Jesus says, the hour of my glory has arrived. That word glory, that hour, he's actually referring to the cross. He's referring to his death. In other words, Philippians, the other Paul in Philippians says, Jesus Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, humbled himself to the place of a servant, and became obedient, obedient unto death. 
In other words, he lived the law and fulfilled the law perfectly. He became obedient all the way up to the cross. Jesus Christ walked a narrow road. He walked a narrow road right up to Calvary. Only he could do it. Only he was willing to do it. Only he loved to do it. Jesus Christ is the opposite of all. He says, I am the good shepherd. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus, first time he ever meets Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the perfect sheep, the Lamb that will be slain, he says. Jesus Christ bears good fruit. The Bible, the book of Hebrews, calls him the first fruit. You know what the first fruit is? You take the best piece of fruit from the early part of the harvest, and when you take a bite and it's sweet and it's good, the rest of the harvest that follows you know is going to be good. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is that fruit, good fruit, life-giving, sweet, delicious fruit, he says. But on the cross... Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin become sin for us. In other words, he became poisonous so that we could become the righteousness, the good fruit of God. Jesus Christ knows the word. You know that when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually quoting scripture. He knows the Old Testament. He knew his Bible. He was quoting and reciting and praying through Psalm 22. And he says, my God, my God, there's the emotions, the emotional content, the doublet again. That means that on the cross, Jesus was praying to God. He was worshiping God. He was crying out on the cross. And he was performing the ultimate miracle. On the cross, the wrath of God that we deserved was being poured out on Jesus. And there on the cross, he said, give me more. Give me more. Give me all of it. He sucked every part of that wrath until it was dry and there was no more. And he fulfilled it completely when he said, it is finished. These people crying out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Jesus Christ said, it is done. Rest in that. All the while he was being pelted with the wrath of God, he had genuine trust in the Father. Jesus Christ had the access. Jesus Christ had the approval of God. He had the love of God, the embrace of God. And when he cried out, my God, my God, I've been forsaken by God. That's really God saying, depart from me. I never knew you. Why did he do it? Jesus Christ had the glory. He surrendered the glory so that we would have his glory. That's the inner glory that we need. Jesus Christ lost access so that we would have access. That's the only access that you need. Jesus Christ lost the righteousness of God so that we would be righteous in him. Why are you working so hard to be good on the outside? Jesus Christ gave up his kingship to become the greatest king. The most shocking thing about this prayer, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Is Jesus saying, I will tell them plainly, depart from me. I never knew you. You know what that means? The greatest punishment on earth that you could ever experience is to lose access to God. So what's the point of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to sum it all up. If you're a visitor, welcome. You, you're smart. You came to the end, and I'm going to tell you the point. Here it is. Do whatever it takes to get him. 
That's it. Whatever it's going to take to receive Jesus. Center your whole life around the gospel. And he gave you what you do. This is how you do it. This is how you practice centering your life around the gospel. Otherwise, you're just saving yourself. I'm going to close. It's an old song. You know, before the whole Christian uh, music movement, you know, took hold, the contemporary music uh, movement took hold, there was a, there's an old song, um, and uh, it got me when I was in elementary school. And I'm just going to read you the, the, a couple stanzas of the, of the song. The singer, she says, Are you tired of chasing pretty rainbows? Are you tired of going round and round? Wrap up all the shattered dreams of your life, and at the feet of Jesus, lay them down. Let's surrender. Give them all. Give them all. Give them all to Jesus. Your shattered dreams, your wounded hearts, your broken toys. Give them all. Give them all. Give them all to Jesus, and he will turn your sorrows into joy. When you see Jesus laying down his life for you, it will fill you with his glory. There is the significance and the value and the approval and the love that you've been looking for all your life. The first thing you do is you start to see that you can be extremely busy for Jesus and not be doing it for him at all. You're addicted to your works. That's why you're exhausted. That's why you're anxious. That's why you're depressed. Rest on the mercy and love of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you should live and died the death that you should die. Do whatever it takes to rest in him. Let's pray together.